0: Thinking basketball podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we're going to talk all about something very interesting. That no, I can't talk that fast for the whole episode. That was just a test for those power listeners who like to listen to the podcast on high speed 1.3, 1.5, gasp, 2x speed, just plowing through their podcast quota during the day. That was just a reminder. For them, that I know you're out there. I know you're powering through. I mean, honestly, I do the same thing sometimes. I don't, who wants to listen to me talk consecutively for 30 minutes or 45 minutes? Um, On that note, we do have some guests coming up here as the season is kicking back into order. Uh, Looking forward to those. And of course, uh, the annual preview podcast, which I guess now will be December 21st, basically. With the season kicking off on the twenty second, I don't think there's anything too weird about that. The season could start around Christmas and be shorter. And the twenty twelve season was certainly very fun when we did it that way. But I feel like the bubble just ended about twenty four minutes ago, Um, so it's a it's a lot to take in with the season coming back. And even as I record this, I think there are preseason games starting today or tomorrow. Who knows? Who can keep up with time anymore? Um, I'm not Christopher Nolan, but that's becoming a theme of this podcast. Today, as promised, we are going to talk about what to look for when watching a game and then how that plugs into the stats that we don't measure. Now, I've said it before, I think probably the most important or kind of, to me, um, the most fundamental podcast. Idea that I've laid out since I started this podcast was episode three or maybe four on the tyranny of the quantifiable. And you can go back and listen to that if you haven't. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but we will touch on it today. The tyranny of the quantifiable is this idea that what you measure kind of takes on so much importance that it drowns out the other things that you don't measure. And so when we Think about evaluating players. We're not sitting there watching a game as it unfolds while we do this. Usually we have to do it um, comparatively in a conversation while we're sort of looking at stats profiles, whatever it is. And the data that we do have starts to take on so much importance that it becomes hard to think about other things. So, related to this, uh, certainly something that I'm always thinking about, but I've been thinking about recently going. On these really deep journeys through the historical legends in the in the greatest peak series that's running on youtube right now i've been thinking about um sort of the the more that we have analytics and stats and data and the better and sort of more reliable this information gets what that means for the things that are still missing so here's a tweet i sent out yesterday led to a lot of really interesting conversation and ideas, and it has poll results. Ooh, poll results. Um, that's always exciting. Uh, here's a tweet. Two players play in similar roles. All we know is they throw similar passes. That was very deliberate word choice, by the way. All we know is they throw similar passes, and they even, because of that, have similar assist percentages, layup assist percentages, turnover, bad pass percentages, etc., things like that. Well, I didn't have room for bad pass percentage. I just wrote turnover percentage. Don't want the Twitter police coming after me. Uh, Player A, so we have these two players. Player A scores 27 points on 60% true shooting. Player B scores 25 points on 58% true shooting. So one of them looks like he's a slightly better score. And I thought about making that difference more extreme, but I wanted something that was... Similar, but you know, just a little bit better on the scoring front, and the assumption that if we watched a highlight film or we only paid attention to their assists or things like that, that they we, we would think of them as roughly similar passers. You know, we'd have to go deeper to really understand the nuance of those differences, but that's kind of a wash. So slightly better scoring, the passing is kind of a wash. Is that better scorer a better offensive player? Is player A? a better offensive player. Here are the results. Nearly 4,000 votes. 3% of people said no. Player A is not a better offensive player. Um, That makes me think that about 3% of people will troll anything on the internet because I don't know how you make an argument that he's not better definitively based on this. There was also an option for show me the results. So a bunch of people answered that. Of the remaining people who answered either player A is better or it depends, 46% of those people said player A is better and 54% said it depends. So almost a 50-50 split. The the Twitter room was kind of divided on this one. And some people were adamant that it depends and going into reasons that we'll talk about today. And other people were adamant that you're overthinking something or trying to be too cute. And they said, yes, he's better. Interestingly, another thing that I heard people say, more than one very smart person uh, that I know, they said, oh, I looked at that and I... Essentially, read it as all other things being equal. And again, let me reread it again because I was very careful with the word choice here to not say that. I wasn't trying to say that. All I was saying was: first, the two players are in similar roles, so we don't really want to get concerned with a finisher and a pick and roll, you know, guard versus a big. Uh, that's not the point. If it's you know, they're both finishers at the rim, they're both lead guards, they're both pick and roll guys. That's what we're trying to compare: something that's very similar. And in theory, that means they have, you know, we're not splitting hairs and saying one's on a team with four all-stars, so he asked, he's asked to do less, and the other's on a team where he's asked to shoot on 50% of the possessions or something. So similar roles. And then all we know is they throw similar passes. They throw similar passes. And a lot of people read that as all other things being equal. And I think what's going on there is there's a, there's, which is, gets back to the point of the tyranny of the quantifiable. I think there's a subtle thing happening where when you think about a player's offensive value at a very, very high level, you could say, okay, he's got the scoring branch and he's got the playmaking branch. And of course, uh, as Patreon subscribers know, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. One of the stats I publish over there is a scoring value and playmaking value. And I've done podcasts, sort of built around that as a summarizing metric to help us kind of understand maybe how much value is coming from this guy's scoring, and maybe how much value is coming from his playmaking. And so if we've got playmaking covered, and we're looking at scoring, aren't we kind of done here? And I think to a degree, if we bucket everything into those two categories, and we can do that for most of what happens on offense then I think we would be done. But in this case, all I've done is present something that I see constantly on the internet when people are discussing player quality and comparing two different players. I've said they play similar roles, they throw similar passes, so their passing numbers look similar, and one has slightly better scoring numbers. And I don't think that encapsulates the entirety of the problem. I think it gets us A decent amount of the way there. But even if we were to try to group everything under either category A scoring or category B playmaking, there's still other stuff that we're going to talk about today uh, in a minute. And as I talk about what I watch for when I go through and watch games and make player profiles and things like that, there are other things that clearly fall beyond just the data that we capture, the the actual stats we have to generate playmaking. And of course, I've done a lot of work on that with passer rating and shots created and things like that. But that's still, as I've said many times in articles, all those things aren't created equally. And similarly, even in players who have similar play types or roles, all your points aren't created equally. To some of you, I think this is preaching to the choir, but I do think it's super important and connects directly to what we watch when we watch a basketball game, what we think about, you know, what we're looking for, basically, what's missing from what we measure, what are we trying to contextualize as we watch the game? Friend of the show, Zach, from uh, the Off the Glass podcast, at the Off the Glass, he said, "I need to watch them play. The numbers look cool, but I need to see it. And I think that's an instinct that a lot of us have when we encounter these kinds of—I um, mean, comparisons—is where I usually see them. But it's sort of your own intuitive process as you work through how I'm stacking up players and evaluating them. And of course, what I asked him was, you know, okay, but then what are we going to look for, right?" That becomes the million-dollar question: What are we actually looking for when we watch a game? Now, before I go into the process, I'll also note that a lot of people in this discussion mentioned off-ball play. You know, the term "gravity" was thrown around a lot, or off-ball movement. And what's interesting, and by the way, I agree with that. We'll, We'll talk more about I think what's missing in a second, but that is a huge component. And I think what's interesting about that, um, besides me having talked about it many times before and done doing videos and podcasts on it, is that to a certain degree, we now have one, actual stats that attempt to represent or ballpark this, and two, we have nomenclature for it. We have language to say gravity is an important concept that relates to impacting the way your teammates can operate and score without you getting an assist, having the ball, doing anything that's a traditional box score measures. And a lot of people, by the way, disagree a little on what exactly we mean by gravity. Is it strictly the way the defense responds to an offensive player? I mean, technically, I think that's true. But what's really happening here is we're, we're talking about an impact that historically wasn't measured, that now has some attempt to measure it by different people in the community, probably teams internally have their own attempt to use stuff like the camera data, the optical tracking data, and attempt to actually capture this effect because it's important. So having language helps us see that and talk about it and recognize what's missing from the equation when we say, hey, here are players with similar passes thrown and passing stats, if you will, and then here are their scoring stats. One has better scoring stats. Does the better scoring stats make this player better? Ah, well, what's missing? Okay, gravity. Movement. Another one, by the way, which is probably smaller today and depends on your position, but offensive rebounding. I've talked about this before. Offensive rebounding is a component of an off-ball game and while it is tricky to really measure super well, uh, I, talked, of course, did an entire podcast on rebounding. I mean, just in practice, having an understanding that someone grabs way more second chance points to two or three per game or whatever it is, be, you know, because of what's happening without the ball, they then continue possessions for teammates or turn that into uh, opportunities themselves. All of that is a factor that isn't captured in your scoring and passing stats. Another one that people mentioned is you could look at other statistics we do have, like three-point shooting or shot profiles. Does this guy shoot from different spots on the court? Does it all come from the same place? And those things might give you some insight into something. I mean, in the case of three-point shooting, it tells me a little bit more about that aforementioned gravity effect or some spacing effect that we know adds value on offense. So, okay, maybe there's more going on with a guy who can score from three levels regularly versus a guy who scores at two levels. Uh, maybe the maybe free throw rate is another thing that has some positive correlation with value. If, if you have a higher free throw rate and you score at three levels, maybe that suggests some scoring versatility or something that's harder to take away? I mean, there's a lot of subtle, smaller, additional things that you could already look into that are just subcomponents of these stats that we capture. But even then, there might be a little trap because we're still only talking about things we measure. Uh, assist, you know, assist percentage, assist to turnover percentage, assist to usage rate. Um, another one is what to make of how many shots... Uh, or field goals are assisted field goals. You know, do you self-generate most of your offense or does most of your offense come from a teammate's pass? And what does that mean? So there's a lot we can dig into that may have some subtle implication for uh, a more positive value player with those numbers or a more negative value player. But I think there's another huge one that I rarely ever see discussed and I'm going to tell you about it right after this break. Okay, I'm realizing that I don't have a sponsor for this show, so there's going to be no break. We're just going to go right into it. The big factor I don't see people discuss is speed of actions, and this could all be filed under decision making, and I've wanted to make a video on this for a while in addition to the off-ball movement one. I produced last year. Uh, this is the other thing, sort of in my head, that isn't discussed a lot. That that is just missing when we think about a how valuable or impactful players are when we watch them in their circumstance, and then of course b this is a huge thing as as much of this conversation is for fitting in with other teammates, for scaling up or having that portable game that I talk about. Um, to me, those concepts aren't mysterious. I've heard people say, you know, we're talking about things that don't happen. It's in fact quite the opposite. To me, all of these things, off-ball movement, spacing, shooting, versatility of your skills, uh, how you cut, when you cut, how you read the game, and then this category of decision-making and the speed of your actions. So that means the speed of your cuts, the speed of your shots, um, how how long you hold the ball for but it's not just time of possession. I want to be clear about that. We have time of possession data and I got really excited when time of possession data came out a few years ago and started diving into it and realize that's not it. There's still a lot to be filtered out from time of possession, but you know, you could still talk about it as time of possession in certain circumstances because to me I'm thinking about how quickly a player makes a decision that increases the expected value on a possession, increases his team's opportunity to have a scoring possession. And because there's a shot clock in basketball, because that time pressure is literally ticking away the second your team possesses, possesses the ball, the faster you can do things in general, the better it is. Now by the way that doesn't mean that slow players are bad players or that it's always problematic to play slow. That's the the logical conundrum of affirming the consequent. We don't have to do that. But in general, the speed of your decisions matters a lot because of that shot clock. And the reason why I phrased it as speed of actions originally and I think that's a better way to think about it is if you cut Into open space, A, you want to make that cut immediately once the vulnerability is there in the defense. And B, if the ball is moved to you, you want to act on that opportunity as quickly as possible. So if the best thing to do is catch it and shoot a little six foot floater before the ball has even hit your hands, like Sean Marion used to do, someone needs to investigate that. How did Sean Marion catch and shoot before the ball? Even arrived in his hands. Oh my god! That's why they call him the Matrix. Oh, we got to stop the podcast. I've I've learned everything I need to learn for today. Um, (laughs) I, I hope this is making sense. If you think about a player like Larry Bird, who just came out this week to Patreon Deluxe members, and will be released on YouTube his historical profile in the Greatest Peak series in a few days after. You know, this podcast is released. He everything he did, or almost everything he did, it seemed like was incredibly fast and quick. When it came to his decision making without the ball, his actions without the ball that added value, ducking inside for an offensive rebounding, make making a cut, uh, whatever that is, and then when he had the ball, making an action as quickly as possible, whether it's pass, shoot, dribble, and attack. Um, whatever that may be, and then moving along. And again, the time pressure is a huge reason reason for this. But also the whole idea of there only being one basketball is a huge a huge reason for why this is so important. Because you don't chip away at the value of what your teammates can do. It's the opportunity cost. And I don't know if that's the right language. Like with gravity, that language developed over time, and however you kind of feel about the concept, I think it's a powerful enough metaphor that it's stuck and it's clear. And in this case, I'm, I'm looking for language that gets us there with this concept. And maybe it's opportunity cost, maybe it's something related to that. Um, as I often do, I'll throw it out to listeners and you can all let me know at LG35 on Twitter, you, you guys tend to come up with uh, better naming conventions than I do. But the concept, right, gets us to this idea of opportunity cost. There's nothing inherently wrong with LeBron James pounding the ball, holding it, micromanaging the offense, systematically dissecting how he wants the other four pieces on the court to move around like a chessboard or some football play where he's the quarterback, getting deeper in the shot clock. And finding the best shot based on that. That's kind of how LeBron has played in a lot of his most successful situations. And those offenses have been incredible. And his track record and performance on offense in that role has been incredible. So it's not that there's something inherently wrong with that. It's that if you do that, that becomes the path that you're going down. You don't have a lot of other options in that possession to, you know, whatever it may be, whatever your offense is, post someone up, um, run a double stagger into something else for a shooter, run floppy, run a... You, you, you're you not going to cycle through options that pressure the defense necessarily. Uh, I even think of Steve Nash with the Suns to a certain degree, where we've got that term gnashing, where he does that Wayne Gretzky move, where he dribbles right around the net and comes back out, by keeping his dribble alive, and by being one of the greatest passers in the history of the world, he continued to pressure you as the shot clock moved down. 14, 12, 10, he's still continuing to take advantage of whatever edge he already gained upstream in the possession. In the kind of opposite scenario, well, I guess the Warriors and their just constant movement and trying to um, sort of fracture defenses at the seam so they just crumble under the weight, uh, that might be the opposite. But um, if you if you stick with me, and hopefully you're following what I'm saying here about even Nash versus LeBron, LeBron, and look, he didn't do this all the time. I'm just using as, as an example, as an archetype. If you think about massive control and waiting for something to unfold. Well, if that one thing you are waiting for to unfold takes 10 or 12 or 14 seconds, if it has one moment of truth where the defense has to make a choice and they fail to make a choice, and then you have to move on to something else, that comes at the opportunity cost of every other play or every other player on the court in the playbook. This stands out to me when you watch games from what I call that dead ball era at the end of the illegal defense period into right before they changed the freedom of movement rules in the 2005 season, that late 90s, early 2000s, where they would work so hard to set these cross screens in the lane and work for the right angle to throw an entry pass into the post. And then they'd feed the post and there'd be 12 seconds left on the shot clock. And you get to go to work in a one-on-one post situation where I, I... I guess maybe you're waiting for a double team, so then you can attack the double team with a kickout. I mean, it was a very different style of basketball, but it was also one that kind of exposes to me the issues with opportunity cost. Adrian Dantley is another player who plays like this. And I, I've talked about him in Thinking Basketball, the book, and um, some of the commenters in that Twitter thread were saying, like, you know, should this kind of be related to a sort of Adrian Dantley rule or something. Fluffy fluffy Pancakes even said, this is some Adrian Dantley type of trick question. Man, doesn't that make you want fluffy pancakes right now? I don't know. Fluffy pancakes sound delicious all of a sudden. Okay, so let's talk about what this means for actually watching the game. Um, The first big thing, just at a high level, is... I think the difference between active viewing in basketball and passive viewing in basketball. One of the fascinating things about basketball is that it's simple enough to follow with passive viewing. You can follow the ball around the court. You can get an idea of who passes and scores and so on and so forth. And yet it's complicated enough, especially now, that it requires active viewing to really understand what's happening in the margins and to even become aware of some of this nuance. It reminds me of that that tweet I mentioned from Zach earlier, like you have to watch the game to figure out the additional things and what you're trying to contextualize. But what is it exactly? Like what are we trying to put our fingers on when we watch? I think the things we already have stats for are clear that we're trying to contextualize them in some way. The things that we can develop language for, like gravity, we might not have the stats yet, but we know to kind of look for it when we watch. Oh, this one player stands still. This other guy, Steph Curry, runs around and warps the court. And I've never seen more people get double and triple teamed without the ball and confuse the defense because they're worried about his shooting. And then from there, by the way, we can, you know, of course, attempt to actually figure out what that means. Like, is it really, really important? Is it kind of important? And that's where we get into deeper things like a team's offensive rating, lineup analysis, on-off data, et cetera, et cetera. But at least we start to develop a feel to watch for that. Okay, but what about the other stuff? What about the category of decision-making? What about speed of action? So for me... This is what I'm looking for. People might think of this as style, right? Where are things happening? Where on the geometry of the court does the player succeed? Does he camp out in the same spot? Is he dangerous from any spot? How does he become dangerous? When the ball touches him, how quickly does he take advantage of the edge that he's created? When he has an opportunity without the ball to create an edge. How quickly does that happen? And this relates to how he's going to fit with other teammates. So there's sort of a, a how component. How did he, how did he generate those points? How did he generate those assists? Sometimes there's no assist measured. It's a hockey assist or something else. Where did it come from? Is it always happening in the same place? And if I can identify the success, is there an opportunity cost to that success? one of my friends, I was talking to this idea with him and he was thinking of a tree and he said, well, if you think about opportunity cost, um, you could think about it as pruning branches on the tree versus growing branches on the tree because you're creating more and more avenues or connections. So a guy like James Harden and his style of offense right now in Houston would be someone that prunes branches. You're, you're taking specific routes to find his success. Again, we know that's a very successful offense, but it also means that you can't just compare his scoring and playmaking numbers to a guy like Larry Bird, play, forget the era difference, just playing on a super, super high level team that is also constructed of another post player, a high post player. Guards, shooters, whatever it is. It's a totally different offensive system. Steph Curry, same thing. And of course, all this stuff sounds like scaling or portability because it's heavily related to it. But at the same time, we're also still just talking about the general idea of value on a court, regardless of how good your teammates are. I don't think Kevin Garnett played with very good teammates a lot of the time in Minnesota, but the quickness of his little extra decisions and how he how he played and executed on the court like he was one of the first players i ever saw in a dynamic situation do that seal screen move when his guards coming down the lane i gather just because it was instinctual to him i tend to think of players and bird is probably the quintessential example in nba history i tend to think of players who move themselves around the court as part of the five-man unit, constantly trying to improve the position of the team's chance of scoring wherever they are, whenever they are, however they are, whatever they are. I tend to think of those players very highly, not just because in theory they're they're going to scale well. I mean, if they're not a good shooter, they might not scale as well, but because they're low opportunity cost players as well in order for them to succeed and provide value, they don't have to take things off the table for their teammates. Some of this you can catch on passive viewing, on casual first-time viewing, but a lot of this stuff, to really follow a player and see you know, where he runs into walls and where he opens up opportunities, it takes detailed viewing. You got to rewatch plays. You got to go over two or three times, things like that. Of course, historically, that hasn't been The case for for me in my own kind of journey of thinking basketball, the introduction of like the DVR and being able to rewatch plays, which was something I started incorporating like, I don't know, 2008, 2009 at the earliest, that started to really open up a lot of these ideas for me as I always ask that governing question, like how did this team gain an advantage on the possession? So we notice the end point most of the time. We notice the layup or the open three-point shot or whatever. But what happened upstream to cause that? Defense, by the way, oh man, is defense fun. Defense is the prevention of all the stuff we're talking about. Where if offense is a bunch of little actions that we're trying to figure out how they slightly improve your team's chance of scoring, defense is a bunch of little actions that try to dent away at the opponent's chance of scoring. And so it makes sense that over the years, some of our, I mean, we have very little language for defense other than things like ball stopper, you know, great man defender. We've developed things like rim protector, and that's helped. But even that, I think, has taken a little bit too long to get into the mainstream consciousness. We're short on data on this stuff. And so historically, the way defense has been has been viewed uh, is a little um let let's say myopic i think that's probably the maybe kindest way to phrase it um if you ever look at old defensive player of the year voting it really speaks to what i'm talking about here it's kind of astounding let's 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 take a quick look before we wrap the show in 1984 i mean it's kind of orwellian this vote in 1984 the second year of the Defensive Player of the Year award, nineteen different players received first place votes. And to me, when I see this, it of course it connects to all the things we're talking about with what to look for and having verbiage for things and watching games actively versus passively. But also remember, there was no league pass then. I think we talk about the data ball era as being after 1997. But the league pass era and national TV games being more prominent throughout the season, things like that, um, they create more exposure to help us get a better idea of who's succeeding. And when I see something like this in 1984, 19 players receiving first place votes, that to me is just everyone living in their own little market. Some of these votes are insane. Um, Magic Johnson. Got a 1984 Defensive Player of the Year vote. If you are familiar with those days, Magic Johnson's best defensive season was probably 1982, where he was playing a different role, way more active off ball, kind of a center field roamer. And he continued to kind of defend to a degree like that throughout his career. But 1984, Magic Johnson uh, should not be anywhere near the Defensive Player of the Year award. So what dominated Defensive Player of the Year voting in the early days? It was steals and to a certain degree blocks. So in 1986, Alvin Robertson won Defensive Player of the Year with 3.7 steals per game. Now, I'm not an aficionado on Alvin Robertson's defense that year, but I can tell you in the games I've watched him play over the years, he's never popped as a dominant defensive player of the year caliber defender, and this not only led to all these perimeter players with steal numbers getting votes, but Robertson was then moved to San Antonio for the next season in 1987, led the league in steals again, and the Spurs had one of the worst defenses in the league. So it's hard to connect a lot of positive impact with his defense, and he played on a sort of Bottom level defensive team. Imagine today giving Defensive Player of the Year to a per- perimeter player who racks up steals without knowing any other information on a bottom defensive team. And I think this sort of we're back to the tyranny of the quantifiable, this focus on steals equals defense equals ball stopper, you know, man D, hold your guy down and take the ball from him. This is why perimeter players in the 80s and 90s, with big numbers like this, were able to garner Defensive Player of the Year votes over some mega-impact rim protectors. Mark Eaton, Hakeem Olajuwon, even Patrick Ewing, in 1988, all lost to Michael Jordan. And in 1990, by the way, Alvin Robertson is still getting Defensive Player of the Year votes, based on his reputation. 1991, 15 Defensive Player of the Year votes for Alvin Robertson, 18 for David Robinson. I'll leave it there. One more thing to wrap up with that a number of people in that Twitter conversation mentioned, and that's versatility that I've alluded to, Earl Boykins could shoot threes. He could hit mid-range shots. He had a nice handle that got him all the way to the rim. He was an excellent foul shooter. I think he was actually an incredible foul, foul shooter now that I, I think about it. Um <laughs> If you compare him to Shaq, my favorite comparison, Shaq had like three offensive moves. He's like a running back. You know, power shoulder down, spin, um, and straight ahead or whatever it is. But there's versatility in Shaq despite this because he moves well without the ball. He's a threat without the ball. He's quick with the ball on different spots. And so while he isn't the most versatile player in history, what matters more, I think, is the versatility to the success. How is the player achieving his success? And are there counters and sort of a diversity in that that allows the success to continue? I go from one side of the paint to the other. If you overplay me, I spin backdoor for a lob, whatever it is. So I think versatility matters in sort of the subtlety here, just like recognizing how and when to set a good screen matters just a little bit. Your offensive rebounding and your, and your ability to move and be a threat in that position matters just a little bit. It all adds up. It's all this nuance and subtle stuff on the margins that if we go back to our original tweet and we say, hey, this one guy has better scoring stats, the Adrian Dantley rule, is he automatically better, even if they look the same as as passers and playmakers? And of course, the answer to me is a resounding no. And I think what's just as equally interesting about this exercise is thinking, well, how how big could the difference actually be? How much do those opportunities cost? In other words, how much value exists in spacing, moving, shooting, rebounding, Screen setting, all these other little things that seem to just dangle on the margins. I think there's a decent amount. Not, you know, I wouldn't say someone goes from a a sub all star to an MVP or something like that. But, you know, I could see the difference between a guy being worth three and a half points on offense and four and a half points on offense with some of the things we're talking about today easily. And in some cases, more. And that's not trivial at all. When we start from the point of these guys look like similar playmakers or passers and this other guy has better scoring numbers and then you're going to make an argument that the guy with the better scoring numbers is pretty clearly a weaker offensive player and that's hard to do without the data or the language around the concepts that as far as I can tell make a huge difference still in basketball. Hope you've enjoyed this one. This is my last solo podcast of 2020. We'll be moving on to 2021. After nine years of 2020, we'll be moving on to 2021. Um, In this challenging, unique 2020 year, a huge, huge thanks to everyone who has supported me, not just on this podcast, but in anything Thinking Basketball. If you want to continue to support Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball is the best way to directly support this show and all my endeavors we are having our final live Q&A of this year hoping to talk a lot about the greatest peak series this weekend in the thinking basketball discord community and of course uh, another great way to support the show is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts things like that thanks again for listening hope you are enjoying the series on youtube and that wherever you are you are having a great day.